0: Have you got a bit of time to chat? not on not on record? Sure, so I'll just stop this uh... Did you see we got uh, we finally, I think we've got everyone switched over to the new system because our mystery Swedish Firefox user switched. And came onto the Reddit to tell us that they had switched. So, so thank you. Fantastic. Now now everyone is over and I've cancelled the Libsyn subscription. And uh, this will be the last episode that goes out on it. And then it will disappear a day or two after it goes out because it ends at the end of the month.
1: I see. Yeah. So So this is, this is the last
0: chance that people have. End of an era. End of an era, indeed. If anyone's listening on Libsyn now... Well done, you slipped in in the one day that it was up, (laughs) but you should update your bookmarks.
1: (laughs) Yeah, hopefully uh, listeners who don't listen actually every two weeks, but sort of do a bit of a uh, a catch up after missing a few episodes, hopefully they'll listen to every episode and they'll, uh, because we've made the announcement about changing that
0: uh, about four times, I think, over the past four episodes. So everyone who did switch, sorry, it's getting quite boring now, but this is the very last one. So it's over now. The long national nightmare is...
1: Right. So, speaking of national nightmares, we had the Swedish Midsummer celebrations a few days ago. Oh, is that a nightmare? That sounds nice to me. (laughs) No, it's not a nightmare. It's actually really, really (laughs) nice. So, I didn't realise that actually Midsummer is kind of a pretty big, serious thing here. It's second only to Christmas Mm. in terms of the amount of rituals there are and the customs and just generally the sort of amount of mirth that people look forward to. (laughs) And um, it's a pagan ritual, Mm. and it celebrates the summer solstice, which I guess is the longest day of the year. Is that correct? That is
0: correct, yes. And I suppose in Sweden that makes
1: it very long indeed. It does, because uh, right now it's rather surreal. So actually... I'm recording this at 10pm mm-hmm. and looking outside, so it's 10pm right now, looking outside it looks kind of like 5pm. Mm-hmm. So there's sort of a blue sky and a little bit of orange caused by the sunset. The sun is actually setting at around 10.30, I think. All right. And, but it doesn't actually get dark. Mm-hmm. So it's rather, rather strange. The other night, I was walking back from an event, and I think uh, maybe I mentioned this previously, but yeah, it's sort of uh, at midnight, it's kind of like the sky is a dark blue color, mm. kind of like what you would expect for just after the the dusk colors have gone out of the sky, but it isn't dark yet. Mm. So sort of post-dark pre-black <laughs> <laughs> is, is the best way to describe uh, that time of day, and that's what it's like at midnight, and it sort of does, it's like that for a few hours, and then by about 3 a.m., uh, the, the colour starts to come back into the sky again, and uh, by 3.30, the sun's up again. All
0: right. That also sounds like a description of my electronica band when I was in high school, post-dark, pre-black. <laughs> <laughs> post-dark, pre-black. <laughs>
1: yes. Um, anyway... The uh, midsummer celebrations, there's quite a lot of things that you do. Uh, We were very fortunate to have a friend who lives nearby Mm. actually invite us over to their house to celebrate it together with their family. Mm. Generally, you would go back to your family. So it's a family occasion. And uh, in the morning, you start the day by picking flowers and you make like uh, sort of wreaths of flowers to put in girls' hair. Mm. And uh, around the place, you see girls walking around with... um, Yeah, flowers in the hair which looks really really nice and then there is a ritual of singing and dancing in traditional costumes around a large what would you describe it as it's a i guess it's like the scandinavian equivalent of a maypole all right if anybody knows what that is it's a specific shape it looks kind of like a big arrow pointing up into the sky Mm -hmm. and uh, there's a whole lot of Confusion about the actual origins of what, where this thing came from and what it is supposed to symbolize. Mm. But it's um, basically a, I guess there's a name for it, which I'm not aware of, but it's basically a, a very, very tall, and it's, it's sort of decorated with flowers and plants and things like that. Mm. And it looks like a big arrow. With some circles on it, <laughs> basically. Anyway, so this particular midsummer, we weren't able to do that because the weather was very, very bad. It was very windy and very rainy. Uh. So we uh, we couldn't actually get out to you know local parks and stuff to see them doing this. Mm. Apparently, it's typically the case that the weather is extremely bad and Swedish people are fairly adamant on doing this ritual even if the weather is really bad on this particular occasion it was extremely bad <laughs> and because we have two kids and the, our hosts also have two kids we just thought ah oh, never mind we'll we'll give it a miss right so we went to their place and uh, we picked some flowers which was really nice and decorated the table and um there's a uh, sort of a lot of symbolism everywhere fr- ranging from very very uh i guess Simple symbolism, which is the Swedish flag and the Swedish colors, the blue and the yellow all over the place, mm. to more deeper symbolism, which is in the, the different foods that you eat and the songs that you sing and the alcohol that you drink. All right. And uh, the um, food was fantastic. It's a whole range of different kinds of dishes based on herring. That's a fish. Right, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Herring with various flavoured sort of dips and sauces and things like that and some preserved herring. And uh, there was also uh, potatoes with dill, which is very nice. Very nice. There was also a kind of cheese, uh, sort of like a quiche, egg and cheese-based pie Mm. that you bake in the oven called, I think it's called Västerbotten pie or something like that. Which is based on a Swedish cheese, which comes. There was also a dish which is a little kind of pastry cups of a certain kind of mushroom, which comes from the north of the country. Hmm. Yeah, it was just really fantastic. Sounds nice. And what are the drinks? The drinks was schnapps. Ah, oh. so it's a kind of uh, what do you call that? It's a it's a it's a kind of liquor, I guess.
0: Right, it's like a spirit, isn't it? Schnapps. Yeah, yeah.
1: it's it's very very strong. It's about uh, I think about thirty percent alcohol content. Right. And um, it's got a good kind of kick to it. Mm. And uh, yeah, very, very nice. Obviously, you drink it in a very, very small little cup. Mm. And there are songs that you sing before you drink it. Mm-hmm. Of which, one, our hosts sang for us. Obviously, we're not much help there because we don't know any of the songs. But uh, it was very nice. And yeah, they're also their children dressed up in traditional costume, which was really, really quaint and nice to see. And it's very... Um, you know i think it's i think personally it's uh, really wonderful when we get the chance to experience these kinds of things in sweden for obvious reasons i think uh, you know being a western country and being myself raised in more or less a western country mm-hmm. you know everything is fairly familiar other than the language right. you know it isn't like J- japan where you get some sort of customs or traditions or rituals or things that you observe that are fairly foreign Mm. and exotic Mm. here being you know northern europe most of it is is fairly familiar right so it is really nice every now and then to have these gentle quaint reminders that oh wow yes i'm in sweden (laughs) (laughs) and uh, you know sweden has swedish customs and swedish swedish traditions and they're rather wonderful and here is what they look like Mm. (laughs) yeah also you know in japan it, it was sort of a very mini mini culture shock for me having a traditional dish being potatoes cooked with butter and dill. <laughs> because, yeah. yeah, because I think that, uh, you know, in Japan, where what I'm used to, you know, when you have a traditional dish, it'll be something that's f- way out there. Right. <laughs> whereas, uh, whereas here, you know, oh, yeah, potatoes and butter and dill, of course. You know, there's nothing exotic about that. Right. But then you're sort of reminded that, oh, well, that's because this is Europe. <laughs> yeah. So those kinds of gastronomic traditions come from here. So that's why it's traditional, I right, see.
0: Right, yes. And that's why it doesn't seem exotic.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, that was the day. And we sort of spent the afternoon kids playing around. And uh, us adults sort of uh, enjoyed uh, some beer and some schnapps and uh, had some dessert later on with uh, strawberries, which is nice. Mm. And uh, that was that was the end of midsummer. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, very uh, very nice occasion. Very right? nice.
0: So, do they they've got the midsummer? I know there are a lot of other similar things. There's obviously the midwinter, and there are other sort of pagan celebrations. Are any of them also sort of celebrated? Or I'm trying to get my there's Samhain. I mean, this is in sort of English Wicker tradition, but there's like Samhain and what's the other one? Bell, Bell. It's not Bahrain. It's not Belfast. Something. <laughs> <laughs> the winter one i think i can't i can't remember which is which but anyway have they got any of these other pagan traditions or? no
1: i don't think so i mean we when we were here in winter uh i mean it could have been just that we you know didn't know very many people when we were here in winter right
0: and winter obviously has christmas so there's more of a tent there's some something big and you could see how they could have been combined over history right right there's less to That's get right. in the way That's of the right. summer one
1: Yeah, that's right. Uh, Christmas is obviously, you know, very big and comes with all of its own traditions that, Mm. you know, are fairly well known. But I can't recall any specific sort of seasonal pagan rituals celebrating winter. There might have been, but uh, I can't recall. There is a certain drink that you have around
0: Christmas time during the winter called glurg. That is a good name for a drink. It is a good name for a drink. That is is the most onomatopoeic drink name I think I've ever heard.
1: (laughs) <laughs> Glurg is uh fantastic it's a kind of wine you You take wine and you boil the wine together with various kinds of herbs.
0: It sounds a bit like like mulled wine. That we would have in England. Is it a similar sort of thing?
1: I don't know. I've never tried mulled wine before. Oh,
0: really? You've never had mulled wine? Wow. Because that's no, a real Christmas thing in the UK as well, right? It's heated red wine mm. with herbs and spices and kind of a cinnamony taste. It's like cinnamon and orange and a few other sort of. Herbs and things.
1: Yeah, that sounds very, very similar. Uh, I've never had that because obviously, uh, where I grew up in Christmas, it's like you know uh, forty to forty-five degrees Celsius yeah. outside, which is like you know nine thousand Fahrenheit's or whatever yeah, it is. And sure. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, you could
0: have it for your for your midsummer festival in winter. Midwinter festival. That's a a good idea. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yes, so I I guess, yeah, it does sound very similar to what you described there. So you've got cinnamon and I think cloves and uh, uh, orange peel. And um, yeah, it's really, really,
0: really, really nice. Yeah. No, I'm a big fan of the mulled wine. Goes well with the mince pie as well. How do you spell mould? M u l l e d. M u l. -L 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 Ah, mould. Mould. Oh, okay. Because it has been through the process of mulling, I think.
1: Right, I see. I I heard it as mold, like fungus. Mold wine. (laughs) I was thinking,
0: hmm. (laughs) That does not sound pleasant. No. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. So uh, they have glurg and there are other, you know, traditional things that you are eating as well around uh, uh, during the winter as well, various kinds of buns and uh, things like that. So, yes, very nice. Very nice. Well,
0: yeah, no, that is nice. There's, I can't think, I'm sometimes struck by sort of cultural differences here but there's not so much in the way of sort of festivals if you know what i mean like obviously a lot of the mm. culture here comes from uh, english culture and then the various other cultures of the other uh, immigrants have come from from all sorts of countries but i don't know maybe that's it like you get lots of festivals for a particular country like i went a few weeks ago i went to the greek festival that was in uh, san jose mm. and that was you know celebration of of greek culture it was at the greek orthodox church uh, they had lots of greek food and some greek drinks you could have and greek style coffee and it was, it was really nice but mm. perhaps perhaps because america is so made up of you know various peoples from from various countries Maybe that's why there isn't a sort of single festival that you can point at and go, oh, yeah, that's that's an American one. Or maybe there is, and it's mm. just not occurring to me. But
1: Well, they're probably mostly modern day kind of festivals or events or things which may come with a sort of a commercial overtone.
0: Oh, yeah, that's a good point, actually. That's Halloween. Right. That's a very, you know, that, that's, that's been absorbed into lots of countries around the world. But that's kind of an American thing like that Halloween the way we celebrate it yeah
1: I think that um, there's a it's interesting to consider the threshold between something being a traditional kind of event Mm. or custom Mm. and when it crosses over into something that feels more modern and less part of the heritage of a country and just something that people do because it's tied in like for example Black Friday sales you know yeah Uh, that's 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 purely very modern day Obviously, because it's tied to commerce right, right. and
0: you know capitalism right, and right, right. Uh, marketing and and revenue and things like that. And because there's no there's no actual celebration, kind of. There's no. There's no thing that people are doing right. It's it's just there are sales and lots of people go to the shop, like <laughs> <laughs> you know, and people get trampled and killed and stuff. But other than that, like there's there's, there's Thanksgiving. Like a... I don't know how that didn't occur to me. Of course, there's Thanksgiving. That's yeah. a kind of uniquely American thing that you uh, that hasn't been exported around the rest of the world.
1: Right, right. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that is obviously a, that's a key one. It's probably something to do with it being a relatively young country. And obviously, a, a colonised country, right? Australia is similar. Mm. Uh, Australia doesn't really have. I mean, we have, I guess, Australia Day, but that's you know, that's not really a. Um, I mean, there there are very you know, usually Australia Day involves going out and checking out some fireworks, right? I am not sure about now, but it did when I was growing up. But that also doesn't really feel so much like a sort of a something traditional. It is just sort of you know, it's a ritual as opposed to a tradition. What is the difference? Between a tradition and a ritual. I guess a ritual basically talks about something that is repetitive that you do, Mm. you know, out of uh, perhaps you tie them together. A ritual is something you do that is repetitive out of habit or because it makes you feel nice and it's sort of comforting to do it, you know, repetitively or out of tradition. Mm. So then what is tradition?
0: Interesting. Yeah, I suppose tradition traditions. Traditions can include rituals, but there can also be things that are, are non-ritualistic in a tradition.
1: Right. So, for example, Japanese people going to Hatsumōde.
0: Yeah.
1: Which is the first kind of uh, visit to the shrine at the start of the year. Is that a tradition or a ritual, or is it both? I guess it's both.
0: It's probably, but I mean, I would say that if. I don't know. We should look it up. But I, my instinct is to say that it is a tradition that every year you go out of your way to make your first visit to the temple. And that is you sort of acknowledge that that is the first visit to the temple and you make it a sort of specific trip that you make. Uh, and then the stuff you do while you're there, the going up to the shrine and shaking the bell and clapping and all of that, that's the ritual. Maybe. Mm. Maybe. Mm. I don't know
1: yeah interesting isn't it? because religion is is very is takes a very sort of interesting place in Japan that because Japanese people will say that we we're not necessarily religious because right you know we're not uh not religious in the western sense right however, you know anybody who's lived in Japan or even visited Japan for a short amount of time will know that Japan is extremely spiritual <laughs> extremely ritualistic and spiritual, but not very quote, religious.
0: Yeah, it's quite interesting. I think the way that, I would say, religion embeds itself into everyday life in a much deeper, more sort of entwined way, Mm. it's less of a a segmented thing, right? Mm. Like, there's a definite culture in the Christian West, if you want to call it that, of going to church on a Sunday Mm. and that being the extent of your connection with religion essentially right you go to work every day and then you go every sunday you you go to church and then you don't really think mm. about it until next sunday or maybe Pretty you do isn't it well well yeah i mean maybe maybe mm. you do maybe you know for some people religion does come into their thoughts a lot but in japan i think there's a there's a sense in which it is embedded into every aspect of life in a much less invasive way, almost, which sounds like a contradiction. But it's like there are just things you do that are just part of the way you do things, right, Mm, that have their origin in religion. And you don't really Mm. think so much about it being religious or anything like that, but it's just normal. right. And so and of course there, so there for example there are shrines everywhere. You very often walk through shrines to get to where you want to go because they're just right. on the way. And you might stop by one of the shrines and shake the bell and throw in 5 yen and and clap your hands together and bow on your way. Mm. And I'm not sure that people fret too much about whether or not the god that that is a shrine to exists for example Mm. i mean it's not that they don't think that those gods do exist or that they do specifically think they exist it's just a non-issue which i quite like i think that is a nice attitude to have it's like Mm. you know here it seems like you have to come to a decision you have to draw a very stark line and you're either you know uh practicing christian or you're an atheist or you're an agnostic or you're you know these could apply to any religions right you could you could have one of those two relationships to any religions it wouldn't have to be christianity right. but it feels like it's it's part of your identity and and like you have almost a duty to decide hmm. and if you don't want to then you're agnostic and that's a decision as well like that's a stance right and i don't i don't really get that impression very much in japan like you just mm. go along with it and everyone goes along with it and of course it's a polytheist at least uh, shinto is a polytheistic religion so uh, there's no there's not this sense of it's it's this god or you're a heretic which kind of lies in the background of a lot of monotheistic religions even if some you know different people believe that to a different extent mm. that that feeling doesn't exist so much because, it, you know, when when you, you've you got a polytheistic base, it's easy to be welcoming to other religions. <laughs> one more, one right. more god kind of hurt, right? Right, right. <laughs>
1: yeah. That's that's uh, precisely what I mean by Japan being extremely spiritual because, uh, you know, you think that as children, you do Shichigo-san, which is a Shinto thing, right. the Shinto shrine. Right. And then you know you get married in a church with a sort of a, a faux Christian style wedding. Maybe and then you will have your your funeral if you are if you are cognizant enough to enjoy it. You'll have your funeral <laughs> in a in a in a Buddhist temple Typically, with Buddhist yeah, traditions, yeah, yeah.
0: or in your house with a Buddhist monk coming to your house to sort of
1: right. Yeah. So they're all sort of mixed together, but basically in the Japanese sense, it it all kind of gets folded into this larger idea of Japanese spirituality, which is simply, simply put, really, which is kind of a definition of spirituality itself, Mm. I suppose, but it's simply put, it's, it's an acknowledgement of the, the existence and the importance of the metaphysical, you know, things outside our regular physical existence, Mm. you know, greater things, in a sense, I guess, and that is never really questioned in Japan you know there's the, there's that idea of the metaphysical there's the idea of spirituality but it's not really something that y- you have you know a switch that you you make a selection am i spiritual or not it's like you like you said it's just sort of it it's just comes part and parcel with the the existence there
0: right yeah to some extent although there are other situations in which that's not the case for example reiki which is a originally japanese sort of spiritual teaching that has become extremely popular in America, at least, and in, in the West in general, I think, is kind of got a bad reputation in Japan. Like, mm. from what I've heard, at least, the, it, it became associated after the war, I think, with the sort of pre war old fashioned beliefs that Japan needs to be moving past and and uh, as, as part of the big industrialization push for Japan japan to be this this developed industrialized country like very very quickly which they did extremely successfully Mm. between the war and like the 90s they they cast out a lot of those old beliefs and and those are sort of looked on with a a real suspicion in some ways it's kind of ironic how much more suspicion is heaped on those things in in japan than than in other countries now where they've kind of taken root even though they're originally japanese Mm. Yeah. Have you ever read Life of Pi? No, of course you haven't. Cause it's not Summerillion. I forgot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen the movie? They they made a
1: movie. <laughs> I did. Uh, you can probably guess where I saw the movie too. On a plane. Yes, <laughs>
0: <laughs> not on a boat. I hope
1: <laughs> no, not on a boat. No, I I um I saw it on a plane, but I can I was sort of dozing through most of it, so I don't really recall it too too accurately. The
0: movie's okay. I I really enjoyed the book. I actually did read the book on a boat. Right, <laughs> I was on a sailing holiday and I picked up this book on in the airport on the way out and didn't really know what it was about. And <laughs> I read it. I was like, oh, it's a shipwreck. Okay, mm. uh, <laughs> but. A thing I really love about that book is the main character Pai mm. is raised Hindu but in the town where he's raised like from what I remember from like visualizing the book at the top of one hill there's a Christian church and at the top of another hill there's a mosque mm. and he goes to both and he falls in love with both mm. and he falls in love with the sort of the Christian story and of jesus and god giving his only son and the sacrifice that he makes and all that and uh he falls in love with islam as well and remains in love with with hinduism Mm. and sort of pulls all the the best facets of all these things Mm. and the way that it's written in the book is there's a sort of beautiful innocence to it there's no there's not really any real acknowledgement that like historically <laughs> that is problematic in some senses. Right, uh, <laughs> And you, most people pick a team uh, and um, it, it is, uh, you know, obviously his parents think he should remain a, a good Hindu and, and every, you know, but you know, he decides, no, I'm, I, I like these things from this story and, and it's not, it's not even that big a part of the book it's like just an, mm. a quirk of his character, but it's how the book opens before any of the stuff happens with the boat and his whole adventure. And that always really struck me as like, I, I really liked that as an idea, as somebody who could could take the ideas of religion and, and sort of find the good in all of them and, and piece them together. Mm. And... The Japanese approach feels a little bit like that mm. to me. Obviously, that this is—you uh, can drag up what you like from history. There's a long history of persecution of Christians and other religions in Japan uh, in, in the past. But you know, the Japan that we lived in now uh, is is pretty accepting of most things and mm. genuinely sort of curious and interested and and likes to take from all of them, including Shinto and Buddhism, which live side by side in the mainstream as the main mainstream religions that everyone holds both of. It's not like half of the people Mm. are one and half the people are the other. Mm. Uh, But also, you know, stories from Christianity and from Islam and from other religions, you know, they, they make their way into the culture as well. And people treat them with the same sort of interest and curiosity and willingness to take them on rather than a sense of, oh, well, that's that foreign thing and and this kind of us and them thing that you often get Mm. elsewhere.
1: Yeah. Um, There are two other examples of um, a sort of a quirky side to Japanese spiritualism, which is a kind of spiritual paranoia in a way where there's a a huge amount of importance put on doing things that will create good luck for yourself. Mm. And two simple examples that I can think of right now. One is... On the Japanese calendar, which matches the Western calendar except that the years have different names, the Japanese calendar every day is designated a different title. Yes, and I guess there are like four or five different variants. I think I think there's like I can't like remember. Butsumetsu, I ha- yeah, the,
0: the, Butsumetsu is the one you always remember, right? Like,
1: yeah, the, every they're the, the, these different names for each one of the days, and yeah. you know they um, they all have uh, different meanings and when you do something important for example move house buy a house get married uh you know these kinds of important events in your life mm-hmm. which you have control over mm-hmm. and control in the sense that you have the you ability choose. to choose yeah. when yeah. that that whole tradition becomes very 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 gravely important <laughs> and you know it's sort of like uh i think you and i you know both being married to japanese people we can uh Probably both have uh, different stories and experiences of when we've needed to be doing something or making a decision on a day, right? And the calendar comes out. Well, let's check what day it, what kind of day it is. Yeah. And then the more that you check, the more ambiguous it becomes. Because, for example, with marriage, mm. depending on where you look it up, some places will tell you that in like before noon on this specific type of day. It's okay. And, uh, you know, on this specific type of day, afternoon, it's not okay. Right. And not okay, okay meaning it will bring you good luck, and not okay, meaning it will bring you, bring you bad luck. Right. It's very complicated.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I, uh, I so mean, that, that is the main time that I remember that coming up is, is when I got married. Yeah. And I'm lucky in that my wife is not particularly superstitious. Right. And so the, the wedding venues will actually charge less on the yeah. on the <laughs> bad great. days or i mean yeah. another way of looking at it is they'll charge more on the lucky days but you know whatever which, whichever glass half full or empty you look at it the the cheapest day to to get married is on one of the butsumetsu days right and we got really lucky because that year it happened that around the time we wanted to get married around the time of year we wanted to get married uh, there was a public holiday which fell on a Monday, so it was it would be a long weekend, and was a butsumetsu. Mm. So we snapped it up <laughs> and so we got to get married on a day that we knew everyone would be off work and that was, was part of a long weekend, so we could have a whole sort of celebration for the weekend preceding it. Right. And it was not that expensive because it was this <laughs> this bad luck day to get married. Well, you might find that if you look it up enough, you might find that on that specific day,
1: even though it was butsumetsu, you might find that actually if you got married before noon, which generally you would in Japan right uh, then it's okay right yeah so you may have you may have gotten lucky. there's another good example, and that is counting the strokes in the names of children oh, when you, when you yeah. yeah when you when you're naming your child in Japan you have in Japanese you'll have the reading and then you have kanji, which is like a Japanese uh, well Chinese borrowed Chinese characters. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and the, you you apply the reading to these Chinese characters, and so the amount of strokes, which is just as it sounds for those who are not a f- not familiar with the way Chinese characters work, when you write them, you are lifting your pen off the paper a certain amount of times as you write it, and that's called a stroke. Right, the number of
0: lines, basically.
1: Yeah, I mean, stroke comes from obviously it being a brush originally. Right. Yeah the amount of times that the uh, brush head will touch the paper is a stroke. Right. Anyway, with names, the, the, a name will ha- with certain Chinese characters with a certain reading will have a certain amount of stroke, a stroke count, mm. a number associated with it. Mm-hmm. Depending on your surname, for example, if your surname is, for example, Tanaka, mm-hmm. that would be Ricefield Middle, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you... If you translate the the kanji, which is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, nine, right. eight, nine, nine strokes, yeah. that's your surname. Yeah. So then the combination of that number nine connected with your first name's kanji strokes, the combination of those two numbers uh-huh. becomes very, very important. and you pay money to experts <laughs> who will kind of like consultants who will actually do all the research to tell you that, yes, 9 plus for example 9 plus 14 this is a good combination mm. therefore this name is okay and will bring good luck to this person
0: does that vary over time or is is the number always cuz like i feel like if it was static you wouldn't need the experts right you could just buy a book or you could just know i mean there's only so many numbers of strokes right so you could just have a lookup table but if it's based on like the stars and the planets and the, the year and and whatnot, then obviously, you know, that's a bit more complicated. Yes.
1: Well, uh, here's the thing. It's, uh, um, this might be a little bit controversial to any Japanese listeners, but uh, it is largely arbitrary in that it's up to the people that you ask, really. (laughs) Uh, My my wife, my wife, when we were naming our children, um, our two children both have, we wanted names that could be read, they're Japanese names, but when you read them, when they're Romanized, Mm -hmm. they're easy to read in English. Yeah so you don't mispronounce them. Mm -hmm. Uh, However, they also have Chinese characters that are associated with them. Right. And we wanted those Chinese characters to be not strange and to be very meaningful in Chinese as well. Oh, right, of course, yeah. My my mother being Chinese, they're actually one-quarter... Chinese and one oh, quarter wow. Japanese. So that's
0: an interesting set of constraints already. Before you get onto the stroke count, you've got to have a name that works in three different languages.
1: That's right. So, yeah. um, sorry, I say one. There are one half Japanese, one quarter Chinese, and one quarter Australian. Okay. Anyway, so we we successfully did find names that worked in all three languages. Mm. So in all three languages, they are a little bit unusual. Mm-hmm. Like they're not regular names. Mm-hmm. However, they are names that are definitely not strange. Mm. And, you know, wouldn't raise any eyebrows. It's, oh, that's an interesting name in all three languages. So right. that's great. Right. So because we had all those constraints, my, when I said to my wife, you know, are we going to be okay with these kanji? Because, you know, I know that we've got to measure the the stroke count of these. Mm. And my wife just laughed and said, well, you know, I'm sure if we paid money to enough people, we'd find somebody who would tell us that this, this number <laughs> is perfect. <laughs> because <laughs> basically uh yeah you know it depends on who you ask because everybody sort of goes to different sources oh, right. sources right. to to check you know what numbers what number combinations right. are good so uh yeah
0: now they also have the uh lucky and the unlucky years and if you go to a, any of the shrines they'll have a big a whole big poster up to say if you were born in this year that means this year is your danger year or next year is your danger year can't remember what that's right. called. Do you know what I'm talking about?
1: Yes, I do. I can't remember what it's called either, but yes, I remember somebody telling me about that too. Too. You know the worst thing about somebody telling you that, you know, a year is going to be awful? Right. I think the reason why generally myself and everybody's different, that's fine, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, if if you go in for fortune telling, that's absolutely fine. Myself, I think the reason why I, I tend not to really enjoy fortune telling of any kind mm. Even horoscope. Well, horoscope's a little bit different because horoscope is generally worded in such a way that it can be interpreted positively or negatively. Right. However, uh, fortune telling, for example, oh, you know, the year 2018 is going to be a bad year for you. Mm. If you know that, then you can't help. It's like a knee-jerk reaction to instinctively look for the negative things to see, oh, look, see, they were right. This is a bad year. Right whereas if somebody told you that 2018 is going to be the greatest year of your life then even when bad things happen you will probably just brush them off and you won't really think twice about right. it and when good things happen you'll think oh look yes they were right this is the right. greatest year of my life look at these great things happening now and
0: the other thing is you tend to avoid taking risks if you think that it's going to be an unlucky year right and then that that's part of what makes it a bad year because you don't you didn't push yourself <laughs> right <laughs> you know like
1: yeah that's um. I think it's one of the. Um, I mean, I don't tend to be too interested in you know the zodiac uh, horoscope. But one interesting thing that's thing that's really kind of nice about the horoscope is that generally they are worded in a very very kind of neutral way right. where it can be interpreted negatively or positively.
0: Right. They do that on purpose, right? So that you yeah, can, of course, so that they can hook people in, but of course. And the other thing that they, they put a lot of stock in 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 Japan which I'm not even sure if you would call this spiritual, but it it kind of falls under the superstition umbrella, I suppose, is blood type. Yes. Do you know what your blood type is? No, I don't. Well, I do now. (laughs) I don't. I still don't. Seven years in Japan and I still don't. Yeah,
1: so we must explain this for those people who are wondering what we're talking about. (laughs) So, yes, there is actually a trail of history behind this. Oh, really? I think in, in the 1980s, I think it was the 1980s or the 70s, there suddenly became this big boom, this sort of trend that people became very interested in Mm. where there were some people who had made connect, who were scientifically made connections between personality types and blood types. Mm. And it's the basic four blood types. So it's not plus minus. You've got A, B, AB and O. Mm Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter if you're A minus or or not. It's, you know, it's, sure. there's only yeah. four it's just types. There's four categories, yeah. And the these four categories matched four sort of distinctive personality types. Mm. For example, you know, A is somebody who's very meticulous and very detail oriented and very concerned with having things neat and proper. Mm. And B is somebody who's kind of artistic and creative and, you know, and then like A B is somebody who's kind of um a bit mixed up between both or something, and O is like the wild child, <laughs> something like that. So it, it was in the 80s, I think, that this began, and uh, it, it sort of began on very scientifically, medically dubious grounds, but just through <laughs> just the television... It's the place it is
0: now. <laughs> <laughs> through
1: the th- through the Through the television, it sort of became firmly ingrained in sort of modern urban culture. right. And as a result, you know, young people in Japan, as something that you sort of talk about when you're just having fun and talking about nothing, the, the issue of what blood type everybody is is guaranteed to come up. Mm. And, you know, people will say, oh, are you A? Yeah, oh, yeah. And I knew you would be A yeah, because yeah, yeah. you're detail-oriented and yeah. you'd like things to be neat and, and orderly, you know. Uh, so it's kind of a shocking thing for Japanese people when they find out that most Western people who go to Japan – don't even know their own blood type right it's like how do you not know your blood type like what happens if you need a blood infusion right and
0: i I mean probably it would be worth knowing our blood type (laughs) that is probably like leaving aside the superstition we might have an accident we probably should be told that
1: (laughs) right i mean i think though my answer was always that you know people saying what happens if you you know go to hospital and you need a blood infusion and you don't know your blood type. I think my answer usually is that, well, I would hope that the paramedics and the doctors at the hospital would (laughs) would not trust. Of course they would. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm O. It's like, sir, you're you're B or whatever.
0: (laughs) My personality. Um, I've been wrong this whole time.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So it's uh, it's a funny thing because uh, it's basically saying that all people or all Japanese people or all people. Can be categorized into four distinct personality types only now
0: imagine trying to take the the depth and breadth of human experience and break it into four categories yeah it seems, it seems amazingly small, and of those categories there are like categories that go well together and go badly together, yeah so people who you know take this seriously and bear it in mind when they're Starting relationships and things like that—like they're cutting out half the population before they've even started. <laughs>
1: right, <laughs> right, that's right. Yeah, it's a it's a very um, it's a very interesting. So I wouldn't call that spiritual or superstitious, but it is.
0: Uh, I would say it's a superstition. It's a, a sort of I, I strange maybe cultural superstition phenomenon. Yeah. yeah.
1: So, uh, yes, that's uh, that's that's Japan. Yeah. Fascinating, yeah. endlessly. So. The, uh, the other day, um, my wife was, uh, this is a bit of a change of topic here. Okay. There is absolutely no segue in between Japanese spirituality and what we're about to talk about next. So, we're going to go right into it. Shop layouts.
0: So... <laughs> that not true. Japanese spirituality, I'm sure. <laughs> they lay out their shops. In a very spiritual way. It's all the feng shui, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Sounds very Japanese. <laughs> <That's right. laughs>
1: anyway, shop layouts. So, yeah, out the window with feng shui and, and uh, all of that. One interesting thing that uh, we noticed, you know, the the IKEA model. I don't know that IKEA – IKEA, sorry, not IKEA. I'm thinking Japanese. IKEA. I don't know that IKEA is the first people to do that, but certainly in Sweden they are the most notorious people to do this. But mm-hmm. the layout of their shops basically are – like a, a linear pathway. You've got to start at the the entrance. Yes. And even if you want something that's, uh, you know, close to the exit, there's no way to get there other than just walking through the whole shop. Right, right.
0: They have a couple of shortcuts. But... Yeah,
1: there's, there's a few sort of well-hidden shortcuts. But, you know, if if you don't know that and you're looking for something, it's it's an extremely frustrating experience. Yes. Because you sort of, all, you know, why can't I just go there? Like why do I have to sort of follow this long pathway through no, I guess the worst that if you're browsing, maybe it's okay. But I guess the worst, uh, the worst scenario is that you know what you want and you know where it is, <laughs> and you've got to sort of start at the entrance and work your way all the way along this linear pathway to the the exit. And IKEA, being a furniture store, obviously they uh, their stores are very very large, mm. which means that that pathway can sort of take you know ten fifteen minutes just to go through mm. <laughs> to pick up something at the end. Yes, and. Uh, I guess another example of this is, you know, the classic uh, department store elevator, where if you just want to go up, some department stores will have the up elevator on the other side, meaning that you come up from the previous floor and then you've got to walk around the whole thing and go through the floor to get to the other side, to get to the up up escalator on the other side. Escalator, Uh, right, not elevator, yeah. Did I say elevator? I mean escalator yeah I think you did escalator yeah, yeah. it's it's kind of interesting because uh, yes you know you can you can see obviously why from a commercial point of view it makes total sense you know it you're forcing your customer to see your wares basically
0: encouraging <laughs> 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 but you know
1: One thing that we'd my I can't remember which store it was, but my wife was came home frustrated one day that she went to a a fairly small store Mm -hmm. that also had this kind of layout where you had to walk from the the start all the way around to the end, Mm -hmm. and it it was kind of like uh, you can sort of understand it in the case of IKEA because it's such a large store. In a sense, maybe it's actually easier in a huge store to have a linear pathway, right? Because otherwise, you have the potential of actually getting lost. Right. In the case of a smaller store, though, you would think that. I guess if you wanted to prioritize a customer experience, like a pleasant customer experience, then the best shop layout would just be, you know, a big space with all of the products lined along the outside. So you just go in and you can stand there and look for what you want and walk right there. And you don't need to spend any more time in the store than you need to. Mm -hmm. Or if you are, you know, wanting to browse, then you can just sort of walk around at your leisure and just... You know, look at things as the interest takes you. Right. Rather than this kind of art gallery, museum-style linear path that kind of takes you through all things. What's your feeling about this?
0: Well, <laughs> IKEA is obviously notorious for this in a very sort of deeply cultural way, not not just in Sweden, but around the world. I think everyone knows what, what IKEA is and, and the way that design works. Mm. My record, incidentally, for IKEA is that I needed to get a couple of garden chairs. Mm. And I managed to make it in and out of Ikea with the chairs and including paying for them. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't steal them. In eight minutes. Wow. Which I think is pretty good. Did you take all the shortcuts or did you just run? I th- So this was at the Ikea in Corbett, But I think that the design is fairly similar in most, which is that they have two floors usually, right? They've got the the upper floor is the showroom, which follows a linear path and then takes you to, usually the, the cafe sort of sits in the middle hmm. and you go around and then the end of the linear path, it's not immediately obvious when you go in the shop, but when you get to the end, you realise you're back at the cafe, hmm. but now there's some downstairs that lead you to the warehouse section. <laughs> and then in the warehouse section, there's another linear path that goes all the way to where the tills are. Hmm. And then when you go through the tills, you realise you're actually back where you started a lot of the time. Right. Right? That was certainly the case in Kobe, and I think it's been the case in, in other Ikeas that I've been to. So it's if you follow the path, it's, it's obviously quite efficient. But it means that if you really do want something from the very end, and these garden chairs were at the end of the warehouse section, so they're literally just on the other side of the tills, hmm. It is actually possible to go backwards and just sneak through the tills <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the other way. Pick them up. Is that up what you did? And then go, that's what I did, yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I missed the whole of the shop. But still, I think in and out of IKEA in eight minutes is, uh, is a, a feat of which to be proud. Yes, very good.
1: <laughs> very good. It it seems it almost seems risky to me because the 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 risk that you take is that going through a store becomes an uncomfortable, awkward experience because you you know you, you have something in mind that you want or you want to move through more quickly than the pathway will allow. So, <laughs> second time around, are you going to go back to that store if there are other options? Possibly not.
0: I think you are coming to this from a, a very particular viewpoint, and it's one that I probably share and that a lot of somewhat nerdy men probably share. (laughs) I'm not sure that we are IKEA's principal target demographic (laughs) and I'm not sure we see the world in quite the same way as the majority of their customers. I think the idea is that Going to IKEA is a day trip, right? I see. <laughs> like, because IKEA is so big as well, right? It is a a sort of real experience. Some might mm. say an ordeal <laughs> 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 to go to IKEA, and it is a thing that families go and they bring the children and they have the Swedish meatballs and they go around the shops and go or go around the you know the various areas and stuff. And I think that it is genuinely like you are supposed to enjoy that experience and and take it fairly slowly. And they are not optimizing for the people who are going there for one specific thing and just want to get in and out with their purchase. Like, right. Most of the time, I think a trip to Ikea is a big enough... This does backfire a little bit because we've actually been meaning to buy some sheets from Ikea for quite a long time now. Hmm. But we only have this one thing that we want to buy and the ikea is a little distance from us and it's you know in our minds going to ikea is like a big thing and so we've just been putting it off and we haven't bought them yet so in that sense hmm. you know that is basically the the phenomenon you're talking about right that is the disadvantage right but the idea is that when you do get there like you really do you are in the mindset now of i am doing at least a partial redecoration of my house and you look at all the possibilities because a lot of the stuff in ikea is well like it's not the sort of stuff you see in your everyday high street shop that you're likely to be walking through. So you're going to take the opportunity while you're there to pick up everything you need.
1: Hmm. But the, I guess, I mean, in, in the case of IKEA, yeah. I, the the thing is, though, that in, in Sweden, we've noticed that in larger stores, most larger stores are actually laid out like that. Right. Like on a linear linear pathway. Right. And you really get tired of it. Yeah. <laughs> Like, IKEA, yes, you know, they're notorious for that. So, sure, you know, that's sort of part of your expectation right. when you go there. But but for most stores, larger stores, to be laid out like that.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. I think that would be annoying. I mean, you know, I'm thinking about larger stores that we go to here. America also obviously has a lot of large stores because you go everywhere by car. So, mm. you, you tend to go there and stock up on loads of stuff and fill up your car and then, and then drive back. There's less sort of walking to the shops and, and just buying what you can carry. Right. And so, so so we might go to the Home Depot, for example, and that is set in what you would think is the classic aisles layout, right? You've got oh, a number of aisles, and at the end of each aisle, it lists the things that are in that aisle, and there are like three main corridors at the front and the back and in the middle that allow you to go between the aisles, and, and that's it. So it's basically freedom... Freedom of movement. But it's not like, for example, a TJ Maxx, which is a sort of discount clothes store. And that's much more like what you described before about having a general space with stuff scattered around. And you can just freely move in any direction Mm. and look at what takes your fancy. Those are definitely the more common here. I think that very guided IKEA style is pretty unique to IKEA.
2: Hmm.
0: And would be annoying, at like a Home Depot, when you, you you usually are looking for something specific when you go there, right? You're like looking for a, one very particular shape of screw, <laughs> right? Like, and if you had to go through all the gardening stuff and the barbecues and the lawn mowers and the wood paneling and all the rest of it to get to the screw section, that would that would get old fast.
1: Mm. It, it seems like these stores are sort of prior or this layout prioritizes first time browsing visits but doesn't prioritize shopping, (laughs) you know, maybe that's the thing though. I mean, maybe if we're moving into an era where the experience of going to a store is just as important as whether or not you buy something because a lot of people are buying online anyway, you know, for example, your example with not wanting to go to Ikea to get just one set of sheets because it's such an ordeal to find the sheets in this huge long pathway. Right. Maybe they are assuming that customers like you would just order it online anyway.
0: Well, so, they should sell them online if they're making that assumption. Oh, they don't? <laughs> I've got a feeling they don't. I think they, I've got a, they sell some things online okay. and there are some things they don't. And I can't remember whether right. the sheets fall into this category or whether we're not buying them online because we want to see them first. I see. I'm not really in charge of the, the sheets department right? <laughs> and this household, so I'm not sure of the details. But what, what about um,
1: art galleries and museums? What's your feeling about the layout of art galleries and museums? Like, do you, have you experienced art galleries that have, at least as far as the ones that I can recall going to, most of the ones that I've been to uh, a linear path that you walk through. Right. um, Especially exhibits, obviously. Right. But uh, have you been to art galleries or museums that are not like that, that are sort of more spread out and you just sort of have to find your way yourself?
0: Well, I mean, art galleries in particular tend to be like that. And I quite like that guided approach because you often, you know, often it will be an exhibition of a particular artist or whatever. And you you sort of see mm. their development or whoever has curated the exhibition has sort of had an idea about the journey they want you to take. Mm.
1: And you don't really want to miss anything in those. And you don't want,
0: do want to either. miss anything. Right. That's that's also a big part of it. Uh, in terms of sort of more free, sort of less linear museums, I'm thinking of something like large museums right like the british museum in london Mm. or even the louvre in in paris right which which is more of an art gallery but like they have they're kind of a mix of both i suppose Mm. because they 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 have these sections right and you decide which section you're going to go to Mm. and then within those sections usually there is a little bit of a sense of linearity. Not so much. Sometimes there'll be just kind of a central jumping off point and you can go into lots of rooms. Sometimes there'll be like the Egyptian section and it takes you through sort of in terms of the era, like the the early, I can't remember the names of all these. I used to be really into Egypt and I used to know all this. But there, there are a few distinct eras of mm. sort of ancient Egypt, um, according to sort of who was Pharaoh and who was sort of, most in power because that's the upper Egypt and lower Egypt. Anyway, Hmm. they'll guide you through in, in that order sometimes. So I think that, you know, as, as the museum gets larger, it makes less sense to have a complete linear experience all the way through it because nobody's going to make it all the way through it in a day anyway. Right. So, yeah, I don't know, but I, I like the, I like the guided experience for exactly the reason you describe, uh, because, you know, you don't want to miss anything. Hmm. And I guess I also, I mean, I actually quite like linear, computer games which a lot of people hate right like people say it's a computer game you should be have freedom of choice and want like a a sort of open sandbox like Mm. grand theft auto or world of warcraft or something but you know i i really like uncharted and the last of us and very story driven linear games like that because they have been crafted to give you a certain experience right you know
1: certainly when you are crafting a game for an emotional impact it's Mm -hmm. uh, much much easier to do it if you have a linear path that you can assume that the player is going to take, that they're going to do this, and then if they succeed, they're going to do this, and then they're going to do this, which means it plays out a little bit more like a movie. Uh, And in that case, you can sort of more easily chart the flow of emotion that you want for the player to have, you know, where you may have uh, tension followed by relief, followed by, you know, anticipation, followed by curiosity, followed by shock, followed by... You know, like that. Yeah. Uh, Whereas with with a game where you have no control over where the player is going to go next, then obviously it's much, much harder to create those kinds of sculpted emotional experiences.
0: Right. I mean, I love the freedom of of like a sandbox-style game or an MMO. Right. Uh, But I miss particularly with MMOs, like obviously we've spoken about it a a lot about Dungeons & Dragons and traditional tabletop roleplay games. Mm. And before MMOs became really big, I was very excited about the concept because I thought a sort of video game version of Dungeons & Dragons where it's completely free and everyone interacts with each other, but it's this consistent world and you have this sort of freedom to do what you like sounded amazing Mm. and it still sounds amazing. But MMOs to date have not really been able to recreate the freedom and expressiveness that you get with Dungeons and Dragons because there is no dungeon master to adapt the world to whatever the players are doing. Right? Hmm. A, you you have kind of got to go along with the, the quests that have been laid out for you, and and you know because the, they they can't just invent stuff out of nothing. Actually, there was a all this talk about sort of linearity and. And so forth in computer games reminds me of a talk that my my friend and former university colleague uh, Steve Lee gave at GDC last year. Mm. Uh, He's a a designer and uh, he's worked on a lot of sort of AAA games. and And he gave a talk. I can't remember if this was the name or the subtitle of the talk, but it's the bit I remember. So I'll put a link in the show notes called "A Holistic Approach to Level Design." Right, and he talks a little bit especially at the beginning about this this dichotomy between sort of linearity and freedom and he thinks that that's actually not a very good way of looking at it and i can't remember the exact terms that that he used but uh, anyway it was a very interesting talk and one of the things that he references is is in half life 2 for example that's a very linear game Hmm. but through a lot of playtesting and through very careful design they managed to craft it such that whatever you do mm, that's not a good way of putting it uh you tend to want to do the thing that the designer intended for you to do Mm -hmm. and they're not they're not sort of forcing your hand they're not pushing Mm -hmm. you into doing something that you don't want to do like Mm -hmm. the natural thing happens to fit in with the flow of what the designer intended. And so in that game, it's a very linear game. It's quite prescriptive and it will follow a certain route, but it still feels free, right? It doesn't feel mm. limiting because you're nat you know you follow your natural inclination and and that happens to flow well with what the game is doing. Mm. Uh, and that's a very sort of interesting way of looking at it, I thought it was a very interesting talk so I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes because I think it's one of the, you know, GDC has some public ones and some mm. private ones every year. I think it's one of the public ones so I think anybody should be able to see it. That's
1: the Game Developers Conference for those wondering what GDC is. But yeah, that's um, the level design that functions like that is, I guess, kind of like the, <laughs> sort of it sounds like the the holy grail of level design really, where it feels free but it's actually a scripted chain of of emotions and events that you're going through but it's very very risky and very very difficult to pull off Mm. because you know the moment that the player gets any kind of hint that oh this is what they want me to do here the the moment that the player sort of suspects or basically that the moment that they see the design Mm. from the experience you know that basically opens you up to the 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 danger of people going against the design just simply right, because they right. want to see what happens because they they see that the intention of the designer
0: right yeah there are sort of videos you can see on youtube of uh, uncharted for example where like mm. they they run Nathan Drake around to the sort of opposite side of the road from where he's supposed to be and this tank just appears out of nowhere and starts shooting mm in completely the opposite direction <laughs> of where right. the player is because that's where they intended him to be right right like, right. but that is yeah. like I, I played that level and i had no idea right because f- mm. for me when i played it i just naturally you know i ended up going that way and i didn't feel like i was forced into it i just didn't notice that there was a sort of another way i could have gone right
1: yeah, I think the uh, the sort of linear experience in a game, uh, another reason that that is very challenging is that it's great the first time through, mm-hmm. you know, but w- in order to encourage the player to try it again and to come back to the game to play it again, I mean, unless we're talking like a, you know, I don't know, like a 10-hour epic kind of um, Tomb Raider or Last of Us or that kind of, you know, right. cinematic game. Right. Um, I, mean, I don't know Those are 10 hours But you know Something that's very very long uh, Where you are unlikely To sort of you, you know You do it once Over the course of Several weeks Or or, You know uh, And then after you've done it You may leave it For quite a long time Before you come back to it To try it again mm-hmm. Basically Kind of like reading a novel You know so mm-hmm. Unless it's the Silmarillion You don't sort of Start the novel again Once you've finished it <laughs> <laughs> Unless it's the Silmarillion Obviously <laughs> um, <laughs> But uh, the, um you know, having it such that when the player has finished one of those linear kind of games, they still feel like they would like to try it again at some stage. Mm. That's also very a very, very difficult thing to do. Because, yeah, yeah, it's great the first time, but once you sort of know, oh, this is what happens here, that's what happens there, then, you know, one solution that designers have to cater to that is obviously multiple endings or multiple pathways. Right. Where, you know, at certain points it will, will actually be a junction And unknowingly, you will you will take this choice, but that's put you on a certain pathway. Yeah. Whereas,
0: see, that annoys me. That that I get the same fear from that that I do that we were talking about in the art galleries earlier of potentially missing something.
1: Right, and that's the thing that you know that's the trick that when you complete the game, doing that, it'll tell you you have completed twenty percent of this game. Right. And, and you realize that yeah. you know and that that to some people can be you know very very uh frustrating mm-hmm. uh, and to other people it can also be very exciting it's like oh wow you know that was such a great experience but i've only seen a fifth of it fantastic right, you know right. i can play it four more times <laughs> <laughs> you know um and so it, it, it all depends obviously on the player And i think um you know, depending on the genre of the game and the the objective right. of the game, the, the emotional and the design objectives of the game, all of this will dictate which is the best, the best sort of model of design to, to go for. Of course, but uh, yeah, they're, they're all very very challenging. In a sense, you know, that the challenges of the open world game is also um, is a completely different kind of challenge. Challenge, but it's it's equally difficult. And that is, how do you create those kinds of emotional experiences for the player? Uh, and, the, and the kind of flow and the you know gently gently rising and gently falling, and you know tension and then release, and like how do mm. you create that when you have no idea what the player's
0: going to do right right i think that's another I, so another game that i 've been playing a little bit of recently that i 'm like ten years too late is eve online mm. which is all right very classic very famous m uh, m o obviously mm. and I never I never got into it at the time. I played a little bit of World of Warcraft back in the day when sort of when those MMOs were really taking off and, and were very popular. Mm. I didn't play Eve Online at, at the time, but I've been playing it a little bit recently. And one of the things that's very interesting in Eve Online specifically is that so much of the experience of the game is actually player generated. Yeah much more than than World of Warcraft, I think. Right. Because partly, and this is partly just a quirk of the setting that they chose, but it's set in space. Right. Like it's mostly just empty space. <laughs> <laughs> like that is something that is that is different about space from like fantasy worlds, right? Where in a fantasy world you can have an empty field, right, but somebody has to have made that field, right? Mm. But in Eve Online, like they've got literally empty space. And like I, I don't totally know if this is true, but I think you can like build bases like in the middle of nowhere. Mm. And then then that's that's suddenly a thing that exists in the world that didn't before, right? Right. That's not something you can really do in in a something that's anywhere that's not space, basically. Right, right. So that's sort of a very interesting component. And so I think they've they're in a sense, the closest to meeting this this idea of this consistent online world where the players direct all, all the action. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're also quite limited in in some sense because you never get out of your ship, right? So most of right. most of the action that's happening is is kind of on a higher level it's not on the same sort of personal level that you feel with something like everquest or world of warcraft
1: you're right actually an interesting parallel to eve online is uh, a game probably probably i could say one of my favorite games which i've been playing for several years now and that is uh, elite dangerous indeed and um elite dangerous is also a spaceship game and it's based i mean it's the 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 uh, next game in the series of Elite games, harking back to the late 70s, was it? On the uh, BBC Micro, the very first Elite, or was yeah, it the I early 80s? I thought it was the early 80s,
0: but I may be wrong.
1: Right. So the Elite, for those who don't know, is uh, it's basically uh, one of the very first open world games. <laughs> mm. uh, and, you know, the original versions of Elite ran in 64K of memory. And uh, had a star system, uh, like a galaxy of millions of star star systems, mm-hmm. all with planets and procedurally generated description text and, you know, commodity profiles where you can trade commodities between different systems for a profit. And you've got, you know, pirates, obviously, uh, who are, you know, flying around hunting, hunting down ships to get their cargo to sell for a profit and all of this kind of stuff. It's a it's a pretty amazing game to consider that it was done in 64K is, is just mind-blowing, and in yeah. 3D, if that wasn't enough <laughs> in vector graphics <laughs> and 3D. Amazing. Anyway, so Elite's been through a, diff- a few different incarnations, and the latest one is called Elite Dangerous, and um, I've been playing it for several years now. And Elite Dangerous has an interesting solution to this because Elite has traditionally been a single-player game. Mm-hmm. And uh, I believe that Elite Dangerous is the first time that Elite has become a a multiplayer online game Mm -hmm. and the approach that they have to providing a more traditional elite experience, which is a single player experience, whilst keeping all the benefits of what you described in EVE Online, where you have players basically creating the action and creating the emotional curves for you. Mm -hmm. The approach that they've done is that the multiplayer world and the solo game world are actually the same world. Right. So the difference between the two modes is whether or not there are other players in it or not. However, everything that everybody does in the world is reflected in both game types. Mm. So by choosing solo mode, all you're really doing is just removing out of your game all of the other human players. Right. But everything that they are doing still affects and changes the world that you play in in the solo mode. Right. And it's a fairly brilliant way of doing it because. when you're playing, um, I've only ever actually played solo mode. I've never played the co-op mode with other players around. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a sense, you, you, well, p- for me personally, you know, I don't really miss it. I went, I chose the solo mode simply because I wanted a more traditional elite experience. But the world is changing. It's very dynamic, mm. <laughs> and you get the sense that it's changing. You know, it is changing because of player interaction. Mm. And even though you don't have other players around you, uh you can feel the fact that other people are there doing things, and uh it's a really interesting unique way and I'm sure there's a lot of very tricky technology that uh goes in uh to it to make sure that um you know there's a lot of edge cases there if you've got players affecting a world and yet you can also play without actually seeing any other players right I'm sure there's a lot of difficult sort of uh design challenges that they had to overcome to make that actually work properly. But it does work properly, and it is a great game. Mm. so uh, that's another interesting approach to how to create you know a, a dynamic world that's that has emotional uh, an emotional component to it that's created by people, mm. however, without other people. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, so yeah interesting.:
2: Yes.